Before we begin this episode, we want to give a big shout out to our Patreon subscribers, especially Lauren, Colin, Peggy, Danielle, Maggie, Christopher, and our newest Iris. Yay, Iris. Thank you. Thank you for all that you have given to us. And thank you for listening, um, most importantly. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, you can be. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash digpodcast. Warning, depending on where you work, this is probably a not safe for work episode. It's not grisly in the way Marissa's was, but we will, for example, be saying the words and pretty frequently. And this little introduction is the only time we will bleep those anatomically correct words out, just in case you started this when your seven-year-old was in the car or if you were at your work desk. Today is not the day that you need to explain to your kids, nor do we want you to get a stern talking to from HR. So plug in those headphones, turn the lights down real low, and let's get it on. Just kidding. Please don't mess to this episode. <laughs> Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Jean-Luc Nancy and Adèle Van Rieth, two French philosophers, discussed the origin of the condemnation of the orgasm, or in their terminology, the Jouissant, in their 2016 book, friskily titled, Coming. <laughs> when they're talking about Christian moral condemnation of orgasms, because pleasures of the flesh are sinful, and all that jazz, yeah. they describe the passion of the Christ. And passion, also a French word, has its own interesting history, uh, which we will not discuss today, so you'll have to save that for another time. I have to, however, quote this directly, because... It's just a je ne sais quoi. <laughs> In the passion of Christ lies the source of a jouissance made of redemptive suffering. God has emptied himself of his divinity. He has become mortal. This mortality is felt both as the death of God himself, as Luther would proclaim it much later on, but also as the divinization of the life of man. Human truth is henceforth divided in half. One must pass through suffering in order to reach salvation. Now, if you take that out of Nancy and Van Reith's book, the bit about emptying oneself of divinity and suffering to reach salvation sounds, I think, pretty run-of-the-mill, church talk from fancy church talkers. Right. But Nancy and Van Reith have stirred that church talk into some context here. And now... I hope, like I, you cannot unhear it. Because the suffering in that moment is the moment just before the orgasm. And if you're like me, now you're thinking about that moment. It is a kind of suffering, isn't it? <laughs> Tense limbs, labored breathing. Some people even work their way to orgasm through literal inflicted pain. True. And then boom! Release, oblivion, salvation, Jouissance. We talk about being spent, empty, languid, or floating. The little death we suffer, 
le petit mot leads us to glorious salvation. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure how many pastors present that particular uh, version uh, in their Easter sermons. <laughs> not one that I've heard anyway. <laughs> I mean, maybe we're all going to the wrong church. Right. Or maybe I'm I'm not sure I would want to go to that church. <laughs> I would I would I would actually probably go to church if that was on the docket. <clears throat> In this chapter of their book, Van Reeth and Nancy are contemplating the intersections of jouissance and Christianity, reading between the lines, investigating concepts like communion, the story of the passion, and the sin of Eve and the forbidden fruit. It's only in a few instances that their investigation of orgasm touch on what I'm most interested in, a philosophical take on a French phrase for orgasm, the petit mort, the little death. For my contribution to this series on death, I wanted to investigate the history of La Petite Mort, rather than the stories of actual death and dying that Marissa, Sarah, and Elizabeth have dished out over the course of this series. I'm bringing something a little more metaphorical to the table. So today we shall discuss the jouissance, the climax, the release into euphoria, La Petite Mort. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Sarah Hanley Cousins. And we are your historians for this sexy time episode of Dig. Oh boy. It's only going to get better. This is a tricky one. We are not going to be able to point you to a moment in history when people started talking about orgasm as a little death. The Oxford English Dictionary is very helpful in that it provides a short history of when such phrases first appeared in print in the English language, and per their estimation, the earliest use of the English phrase, the little death, is from the 16th century. But the date when a phrase is committed to print is not the date that such a concept enters a lexicon. I can't actually say to you that when the people writing the New Testament committed those words to memory or paper, they were talking about Christ's death as sex. I'm not going to say that. However intriguing a topic, I am not a religious scholar nor a philosopher, so we will not be making the leap to say, for example, whether or not John 19.30 is or is not describing an orgasmic moment when he says, it is finished, and then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Not even going to touch it. Okay. Don't touch it. Not even going to touch it. Yeah. We will uh, instead leave that to Nancy and Van Reeth. Or maybe our friends at Sunday School Dropouts will be tackling this in their future. That would be interesting. Yes. Our interest today is in unpacking the historical uses of the phrase, the movement of the phrase from French to English, or perhaps vice versa, and how this particular understanding of orgasming fits in with a longer history of the orgasm in popular medical cultural, and social history. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, Le Petit Moore has, over the last 500 years, meant fainting fit, nervous spasm, and, of course, orgasm. The combination of the feminine of petit, or little, with more, or death, translates to mean a brief foray into a death-like state, specifically the brief loss or weakening of consciousness. Today, it specifically means the sensation of orgasm as likened to death. So perhaps you can see how the Passion of Christ would slip into the pages of a French text on the philosophy and intellectuality of orgasm. 
The use of the feminine over the masculine iteration of the phrase in French is interesting in and of itself, but we will have to return to that later when we actually get to talking about orgasms a bit more broadly. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the little death is a phrase that has been common in the English language since at least the 16th century. Certainly it may have been earlier, just not in print. The euphemism to die meaning to spend oneself completely in orgasm, is everywhere in the 15th and 16th century English literature, um, as we can see from the works, for example, of William Shakespeare. This would have been well known to all of London's theater goers, from the highest echelons of society to the commoners who stood jammed around the stage, throwing things at the actors and indicating their pleasure and displeasure loudly. Shakespeare used the euphemistic concept of dying as orgasm intentionally to get laughs from the crowd who came to be entertained. That would probably give a bit more perspective to high school English students forced to read Romeo and Juliet out loud. When Juliet says, Oh happy dagger, this is thy sheath, there rust, and let me die. The original audiences of the play may have gasped in sympathy with the broken-hearted girl, or they may well have laughed instead. For she plunges a phallic object into her sheath. And the Latin word for sheath is, of course, vagina. And said plunging brings on her death, a.k.a. divine spending in an orgasm. I wonder how many English teachers realize that what they're having their students read. <laughs> like, were we all subjected to this because our teachers wanted to have a good laugh at our pathetic hormonal expense? Fess up, English teachers. We know you're listening. <laughs> I, I love that, too, because, like, we, there's this perception that, like, Shakespeare is very, like, fussy, like, yeah. sort of upper class thing. Like, it's a very snobby thing to be interested in or listen to. And, like, Shakespeare is freaking filthy. Yes. Like, it's full of that stuff. Yeah. Full of it, right? And we take the tragedies to be tragedies, but they were more like rom-coms yeah. of the time period because they're full of sex jokes constantly yeah and even the saddest part of the play when romeo and juliet die one after the other it still has this double entendre yeah, to it it's right? all yeah. about the sex yeah absolutely the oed identifies the first publication of the phrase a little death in english in the 1598 text thule or virtues history by francis Rous, Rouse. A, by francis Rouse, a puritan and sure, you could read Cant Number 4 as an early modern epic poem channeling the myths and legends of the classical era. The verses open with Diaphon and Pyridor in endless blows, batter the castles of their furious hearts, brethren by birth, by deeds most cruel foes, that bloody still torment each other's parts, while Algager all mortified in soul, the world's short pleasures deeply doth control." Surely as epic a beginning as was ever written in the style of the high romantic poets of the period. The next three stanzas are about the battle that rages between these two young men, whom Discord personified has whipped into a frenzy. Discord in this narrative is a she who has come between the brothers. The brothers being Diaphon and Pyridor, yes. right? Rus's cant lays out how, in seeking to please Discord, quote, one swells when down his mate he throws. Oh my. The men, then, enraptured by discord, are aroused by the battle for her attention, or perhaps by the vulnerability of the other. When oh, one wrestling. falls, oh yes, when one falls, it causes discord to bellow, perhaps moan in arousal, and that in turn arouses the two men. Oh my. Mm -hmm. 
Then they come upon a mount out in the open, and a path in the hill takes them both directly to this mountable creature, and both were, quote, willing to see what novelties lay along the path to the mount. And so comes the crescendo of this battle. Quote, Straight to their cares the sweetest harmony doth blow, that ever sweet to ear can blow, whose force like fire could melt black cruelty, and make it quickly gentle mercy know. From out that little hill is soft doth fly, as if Apollo all his art would show, a little death it is, which up doth send our souls to heaven before we make our end. Oh my. Mm-hmm. And yes, maybe Francis Roos meant nothing sexual by these climactic words. Maybe it's just a sad story of two brothers who are fighting over something boring like a throne or a piece of land or a sheet. But wait, there's more! Oh, cease those murdering strokes, whate'er thou be, my soul will fly from hence unto thy cell, and all in love with this will banish me, sweet honey issuing from a silver well." which gives a surset, not a satiety. Oh, do not more such pleasing murmurs tell, but leave my virgin thoughts without annoy, which thou wilt ravish with too great a joy. So here we have some killer strokes. Mm, sweet honey from a silver well. Sweet honey from a silver well. A vagina, perhaps an old vagina. Is what I'm oh, thinking. a silver, a silver well. well. Like an old vagina. Fox. And of course, virgin thoughts about to be ravished. So... To those who haven't listened to our episode on Puritan sex practices, Roos's not very subtle sex poem might be surprising. But as scholars like Richard Godbeer and Francis Bremer have shown, and as Sarah discussed in one of our very first episodes, the Puritans had lots of sex. They believed that sex was an important part of a strong marital partnership. And they also had a lot of problems with Puritan sex church members having sex that fell outside the bounds of marriage. Extra and premarital sex, sex between men, sex between women, sex between men or women and animals, and more. That's why they made up all those rules to govern sex. Because their people were already doing those frisky things. Right. Up until about the 16th century, sex was relatively unregulated. Illegitimate births were high in most Western European communities because people had sex with whom they wanted and when they wanted. While sex between adult men wasn't usually celebrated in places like England and France, it also wasn't strictly policed. Without reliable forms of birth control, other than herbal remedies and the like, women were just saddled with the product of such sexual encounters. As Jeffrey Quave has shown, for example, between 1601 and 1660, unmarried men and women in Somerset, England, got the majority of their premarital sexual release by masturbating one another. Rarely did those partners go on to marry one another, but the lack of illegitimate births made the sexual contact acceptable. Starting in the 16th century, Christian hierarchies pressured governments to enforce stricter sex codes to punish ravishment, abandonment, extramarital sex for women offenders, Correct. and prostitution for women offenders, to a far greater degree than ever before. That's where we get legislation like Henry VIII's Buggery Act of 1533, which was used to prosecute and execute men who had sex with men and animals for nigh on 300 years. Gross. 
Uh, similarly, in Florence, a previously tolerant sex regime, which permitted adult men who were the sexual penetrators, a pretty good deal of license for whom they penetrated uh, included post-pubescent boys. That changed in 1542 when a new sodomy law was implemented, much like the English Buggery Act, outlawing same-sex sexual contact, and the local government dedicated resources to enforcing it. At the same time, following the Council of Trent during the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church decided to start enforcing its own code of imposed celibacy and sexual restraint among clergy. Up until that point, celibacy was the official policy, but priests, bishops, and popes enjoyed all the carnal pleasures of life with little restraint. Mm-hmm. By the end of the 17th century, the fruits of these restrictions were embedded in Western Europe, giving even the masturbators of Somerset a revised perspective on sexual pleasure. Priests and reverends of various Christian denominations aimed to desexualize sex. They continued to encourage conjugal duties, but urged or shamed parishioners to do so without sensual enjoyment. This was, according to Robert Muchenblad, different than eschewing pleasure. Doctors of the period believed that conception required that both sex partners orgasm, so pleasure could not be foreboden. But one was not supposed to engage in marital coitus with too much gusto. Thus, in Puritan communities, for example, the spiritual leaders pushed their parishioners to divulge what sexual positions they were taking, told them that all the reverse cowgirls and doggies were bad, and encouraged everyone to limit themselves to the good old missionary position, which, I guess, tells you all you need to know about the missionary position. It's not supposed to be very much gusto. That's the point of the missionary position. It's just like, uh, 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 done. I don't know. It doesn't seem that bad to me. <sighs> That's because you're a Puritan. <clears throat> so, le petit more, then. Let's return to that. The phrase was also used for its non-sexual meanings in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. In 1605, Joseph Hall, an English bishop, satirist, and, and moralist, wrote, Every sickness is a little death. I will be content to die oft that I may die once well. Contextually, this use is difficult to find hidden sexual meaning in, even for me, and I seem to see it everywhere. So too did Robert Robinson put the two words together to mean that a little piece of the self died with each illness, writing in 1786, A little cold is a little death, a little more chills us to clay and fits us for the grave. While a good English PhD student could surely find the secret sensuality in these uses, it's a bit of a stretch. The phrase seems to shift exclusively to sexual innuendo by the 19th century. What isn't clear is if the phrase le petit mort is something that was commonly used in the French language before the 19th century. This may be a case of the Victorians translating a common English euphemism into a fancier sounding French in order to shroud their sex talk in mystery. And then French authors like Honoré de Balzac adopting the phrase and its euphemistic meaning back into their lexicon. Or it could be the result of French authors adopting the common English slang of the little death into their 19th century literary works, only to have that cycle back around the English who left it in French also to sound fancy. Lesson being, of course, that French sounds fancier than English, and when hobnobbing, you should definitely find a way to slip in the old petit mot into polite conversation. Indeed. I asked my colleague Doug Boudreau, the French professor at Mercyhurst, and who is, I think, a Francophile, if la petite mort is a way that everyday French people 
refer to the orgasm. He confirmed, what I've sort of gleaned from French Reddit threads, that no, it's not everyday slang. It doesn't have the same place in the French language that coming has in English. It's more, he agreed, a phrase that you'd drop into conversation if you were trying to execute a sort of highbrow literary reference. Most French would know what you meant if you said it, but it's not really slang or common in your everyday conversations about sex and orgasms. Right, which are, of course, everyday conversations. Like our dig text messages. Yes, basically. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> La Petite More appears in the 1863 edition of the Dictionnaire de la Langue Française, possibly in response to Honoré de Balzac's use of the phrase in his mid-century novels. Most notably, perhaps, is La Pue de Chagrin, or The Magic Skin. <laughs> A fable-style tale about a man who finds a magic piece of chagrin that gives him everything he wants, which inevitably gets out of control. In the opening of the story, Raphael de Valentin loses all his money, and on the way to kill himself, he stops into a curiosity shop, as one bent on <laughs> self-destruction typically does. The shopkeeper gives him a piece of chagrin, which is an untanned rawhide. There's Arabic writing on the skin, and it promises that the author, that the owner, shall possess all things. Raphael takes the skin, even after the shopkeeper tells him he probably should not, uh -oh. and Raphael wishes for a banquet filled with wine, women, and friends. He immediately finds what he wishes for and goes to a wild party where he drinks and laughs all night long. In the next part of the story, Raphael remembers several years ago when he pined for a woman named Theodora. His quest for her is what led him to financial ruin at the beginning of the story. Finally, it returns to the third part, the agony, in which the skin is working to give him everything he wishes to possess a little too well. Each time he wishes for something and it is granted, the skin shrinks. If it disappears, he knows that it will mean his death. Then a woman named Pauline visits him and confesses her love to him. Oh, angel, she cried, straining Raphael to her breast in a clasp as strong as love itself and putting her coral lips with plaintive coquetry to his. Quote, as I saw your little death, I knew I could not survive thee. Thy life is my life, Raphael. Feel, pass thy hand along my back. I felt a death blow there. I am all cold. Thy lips are burning, but thy hand is ice. Raphael de Valentin's final wish is for this woman who is confessing her love to him. Mm. He burns with his desire. She learns the truth about the magic skin and flees from him, knowing that if she gives into his wish for her, the skin will disappear and he will die. But he follows her and they have glorious, mind-blowing sex and then he dies immediately after. <laughs> Do you remember? The, um romance novel that we read for uh our book club called adirondack audacity in which the very beginning was a couple having really fantastic sex and the man died yes while he was orgasming and the wife like later on was just like that's how he would have wanted to go out like she wasn't even like <laughs> sad that he died <laughs> anyway maybe she was actually making a nod to 
The, yeah. Honoré yeah. de Balzac. I think so. Mm-hmm. So, rather than the 16th century Shakespearean use of to die in the place of to orgasm, Balzac constructs a larger narrative arc that is sex. Every wish that he has granted is a pleasurable sensation that carries him to the brink of this climax. In the original French text, he uses the phrase petit mort. In the English translation that we just quoted from, the translator actually has that translated to, quote, as I saw the turning faint, instead of as I saw your little death. Because la petite mort can also be understood to mean a temporary unconsciousness. So like passing out or fainting. Mm -hmm. But in the 1839 printed edition of Balzac's story, he uses la petite mort and italicizes the phrase. This makes it seem to, to us, you know, intentional, a way to make the sentiment of that phraseology resonate with the larger narrative. He doesn't italicize the phrase in his lesser known work, Une Instruction Criminelle, when he uses it without the entendre. His character effectively says that memories of days with women, officers of the French Empire, and Chinese girls brings him to orgasm. Uh, perhaps the italicization in The Magic Skin is intended to signal to readers that he means the phrase to have its double entendre. Pauline has not actually seen Raphael orgasm, but it is something she will see soon enough. The second part of The Magic Skin is a flashback. I wonder also if his use of the phrase in italics is intended to mark it as a foreign phrase. That in some earlier edition, he adopted the English concept of the little death as articulated in Rouse's writings or as alluded to in the Shakespearean collections. For his, and for this edition, his publisher just put it into French, right? This is not something that I had the power to decipher for this episode, nor was I able to read as deeply into Balzac as I would have liked. But I will include some references that discuss his novels and plays, and maybe y'all will discover something that I have missed. La Petite More is not in any of the French dictionaries that I could find prior to 1863. Neither the 1740, 1762, 1798, nor 1835 editions held at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France have entries for Petite More. It's not listed under Petite More as a standalone phrase, and it is not there under More. If it was a common phrase, I do think it would appear there, as a range of other common usages for more are contained in each of those editions of the French dictionary, such as mourir de sa belle mort, et souffrir mort et pesant, and the phrase à la vie et à la mort, none of which mean anything to me or us. <laughs> uh, so feel free to write in translations for these common uses of more found in the French dictionary. Marissa is not here. Sadly. <laughs> is not here. And um, French was not the language I took in college. Uh, it does pop up in the 1865 French Academy of Official Dictionary. After Honoré de Balzac's use of that specific phrase was published and part of the 19th century French literary canon. The concept was certainly not foreign to the French. Corneille, a 17th century playwright known for his tragedies, referred to the death of orgasmic pleasure in his play L'Occasion Perdue et Recouvre, uh, or The Lost Opportunity Recovered, in 1651. The protagonist lovers, quote, swooned with pleasure from an excess of happiness. Five or six times they died and came back to life. They lay mouth to mouth and body to body, sometimes alive and sometimes dead. 
According to Mukumbled, the orgasm was not only a delight of the pleasure seeker or a cry of despair. In the Baroque age, it constantly preyed on people's minds, either to be rejected with horror as the work of the devil, or to express a mystic experience in which souls and bodies merge, as said by Corneille. Despite these 17th century associations of death and orgasm, the particular phrase petite mort did not make it into the official French dictionary until well into the 19th century. That seems significant, if not definitive, and I hope someone, somewhere, will pick up this line of inquiry. I only had access, for example, to the French dictionaries that have been digitized on the Bibliothèque Nationale Gallica website. So if you're listening, and you're in Paris, go look through other editions of the dictionary. Are the 1740, 62, 98, and 1835 editions just anomalous? Is Petit Moir normally included in, the, included in the dictionary, and it's just those editions that don't have it? I would be fascinated to learn more. Like Corneille's use in the 17th century, you can find other literary references to the orgasm as death in France well into the 19th century. Paul Verlaine's 1869 poem, Les Indolences, which um, Ave only found written in French, so we're not going to struggle over that pronunciation, um, is basically about these two people. And the man says, quote, would you like to die together? And the woman says, that's a weird thing to ask. And the man says, I mean, die, like in the Decameron, wink, wink. And the woman laughs. And that evening, the two adjourn to an exquisite death, meaning they boned. Yes. Side note, Sarah includes a story from the Decameron in her episode on the Black Death, which is a great resource for talking and teaching about the Black Death, but the horror snippets tend to leave out all the good parts of the story. Right. The Decameron includes tales of love, both erotic and tragic. The premise of the book is that it is 100 tales told by seven young women and three young men who are taking shelter outside of Venice to avoid the Black Death. Right. So it's like kids with nothing better to do than like the 14th century version of Netflix and chill. Bone. <laughs> anyway, and that's I'm yeah. sorry. That's yeah. a really good point about the Decameron is that all anyone knows about the Decameron is like, oh, it's, it's that thing about the plague, but like actually it's this like very long story it, and it's apparently considered like the forerunner to Chaucer's mm-hmm. uh, Canterbury Tales, yeah. which are extremely raunchy. Right. right. Yes. Dirty jokes all around. Anyway, uh, when I came to this topic, I assumed that Petit Moore was just a French phrase that has been absorbed into the English language. At least since the 19th century, French writers and intellectuals have used the phrase cheekily and straightforwardly to, to describe the moment after orgasm in which the spirit seems to leave the corporeal body particularly for men. Hmm. In 1966, Virginia Johnson and William Masters reported on a 10-year study that set out to answer two questions. One, what physical reactions develop as the human male and female respond to effective stimulation? Like effective stimulation. And two, why do men and women behave as they do when responding to effective sexual stimulation? This was really cutting edge research into human sexual responses, and nothing so comprehensive has been undertaken since. Perhaps because this study required researchers to observe people having sex or masturbating in a lab while hooked up to an EKG and heart monitoring systems, which doesn't seem particularly sexy to me. This might be a challenging set of experiment parameters to get through an uh, institutional review board today. It might be a little more difficult. I mean, we should try, but it would be challenging. 
Uh, one of the most important contributions to the mid-century sexology conversations that Masters and Johnson made was debunking Alfred Kinsey's vaginal orgasm myth, which he, he perpetrated, you know, uh, along with everybody else from the 19th century and on. Uh, while a range of physical stimuli could contribute to a woman's excitement and plateauing, generally some kind of interaction with the clitoris is needed for a female orgasm. There are always exceptions because human bodies are weird and wonderful, but generally speaking, it is all about the clitoris. Masters and Johnson categorized reaction to sexual stimuli into the excitement phase, the plateau phase, the orgasmic phase, and the resolution phase. They mapped the genital and extragenital reactions of males and females and the effect of each phase on different parts of the body, breasts, sex flush, myotonia, rectum, hyperventilation, tachycardia, blood pressure, perspiratory reaction, clitoris, vagina, uterus, labia majora, labia minor, Bartholin's glands, Cooper's glands, scrotum, testes, and penis. It's a scintillating read, <laughs> and we highly recommend that you find a copy at your local library, although, you know, you may have to interlibrary loan it. Yeah. Um, in very non-romantic terms, Masters and Johnson described the petite more, the little death, as the refractory period. Quote, the orgasmic phase is limited to those few seconds during which the vasoconcentration and myotonia developed from sexual stimuli are released. The human male and female resolve from the height of their orgasmic expressions into the last or resolution phase of the sexual cycle. This involutionary period of tension loss develops as a reverse reaction pattern that returns the individual through plateau and excitement levels to an unstimulated state. Very sexy. Ooh la la. But, you know, also illustrative. Whether it's French or English in origin, the physical response of the post-orgasm oblivion is the core of the petite more concept. Masters and Johnson's research also showed the debilitating nature of the male orgasm versus the female orgasm. Men could almost never experience multiple orgasms in a single session, requiring a return to an unstimulated state before being able to pass through the three phases to climax again. Women were more likely to be able to achieve multiple orgasms in a single section, reverberating between plateau and orgasm. The petite more, then, despite or because of its grammatical gender, is more a little death for men than for women. So if we don't die in our lover's laps, are we exclusively the killers? That might be a question for another day. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> The physical changes that Masters and Johnson observed and recorded are just fascinating. In their observations of the labia minora, for example, in the excitement phase, they note that the labial thickening and expansion extended vaginal barrel approximately one centimeter. And in the plateau, the color of the labia went from a lighter color to a bright red or deep wine color, indicative of an impending orgasm. Wow. In other words, the labia minora grew in size in most women when they were excited. And change color. The labia minora had no observed reaction during orgasm, but in the resolution phase, the little death, the color changed from bright red to light within 10 to 15 seconds, and the vasocongestive size decreased just markedly. So in more romantic terms, the labia minora and most genital and non-genitals that were stimulated by the experience die a little after orgasm. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
today, when the French invoke the phrase, they're conjuring a particular sentiment about the experience of orgasm. The moment of blinding oblivion is a brief departure from this earthly world. Sex and its conclusion is a spiritual experience. When the early modern English and French evoked the concept of orgasm as a little death, they were building on contemporary medical beliefs about the body. As we've discussed on many occasions, 14th and 15th century Europeans believed that the body was comprised of four competing substances, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile, and that you generally shouldn't expend your precious fluids unless it was doctor's orders. The loss of seminal fluid then weakens a man. And this was quite a common belief across Eurasia at this time. In Hinduism, the Yoga Sastra outlines the concept of bindu, that is, that the, quote, falling of semen brings death, preservation of semen gives life. Though part of a Hindu scripture, this was, and in some cases still is, a common trope, likely because of the feeling of languor and being spent after orgasm, Men who've been thinking about the function and form of orgasm for these last 2,000 years have associated ejaculation with loss, spending and not being able to recoup semen, spilling seed like blood, dying just a little with each lovely orgasm. Mm. There are, of course, a range of Old Testament rules about spilling seed and how unclean and bad it is. But at the same time, doctors in early modern European medicine believe that orgasm was necessary for conception, and that meant orgasms for both partners, not just the seed spiller. But that's because they thought that women were also spilling seed when they orgasmed. Right, exactly. Um, Can I I interject a a story about wasting semen, or do you want me to wait until later? No, do it. Okay. Um, If you haven't seen it, you should watch the movie Dr. Strangelove. And it seems like an odd thing to interject here, but if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about, that the guy um, who is responsible for setting off the nuclear bomb that will eventually end the world at the end of the film does that because he has this theory that the communist Russians are poisoning American water supplies with, um, (laughs) with some substance that is like robbing men of their, um, healthy bodily fluids. And everything is all about like the preciousness of bodily fluids and how like, Mm men's bodily fluids are like important um in in keeping them like masculine and strong and and all these different things and so it's the russians trying to like undermine men in this weird like body fluid way and that's what ends up blowing up the world (laughs) at the end so you should watch it um Going back to Avril's point about, you know, the necessity of of both uh, orgasms in both partners, um, part of that at least comes from this popular one sex theory during this time period, where some anatomists and doctors believed that there was one sex with two genders, and that women were merely sort of the inverse of men. So the vagina was actually just an inside-out penis, and the ovaries were internal testes. And for a long time, ovaries were just called female testes. There's a very famous Vesalius Mm -hmm. um, anatomical drawing of what is supposed to be a uterus, a vagina and uterus, and it's just a penis. Like, if you look at it, 
it's just a penis. It's just a penis. It's kind of a hairy penis, too. It's gross. Um, and I've literally heard male student-athletes say that their coaches told them not to have sex before a game because it would sap their strength. Right? See? The, the Russians trying to steal your yeah. bodily fluids. So these generally incorrect, physiologically speaking, ideas about the orgasm, like the petite more as a phrase, survive today. This is, of course, true of many of the jokes and colloquialisms immortalized in Shakespeare, like a barefaced lie, break the ice, catch a cold, just to name a few. Mm -hmm. And catch a cold is a phrase that is also connected to the humoral theory of the body that shaped ideas about wasting semen. It's all all Everything's connected. It is. Right. And though the la petite mort and the little death would have been more common in colloquialisms in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, both continue to pop up in... uh, in, as pop culture references. So, like, in 1932, describing a scene in which the main characters dance together in a very large hall surrounded by 400 other couples who are gyrating to the music. Huxley's, in Huxley's Brave New World, he writes, quote, the saxophones, which is spelled like sex phones <laughs> by the way, moaned in the alto and tenor registers as though the little death were upon them. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. In 1949, the very weird Arthur Kestler, known among his friends as an intellectual and sexual adventurer, wrote in his Insight and Outlook, quote, The corresponding self-transcending component in the sexual relation is the depersonalization, la petite more, of the orgasm. He also famously said that, quote, Without an element of initial rape, there is no delight and died in a suicide pact with his third wife. So, you know, take his fascination with La Petite More with a grain of salt. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh. In 1959, William Golding, author of The Lord of the Flies, wrote, The little death shared or self-inflicted was neither irrelevant nor sinful in his novel Free Fall. The book is from the perspective of an English artist being held in a German POW camp during World War II who loves a woman who cannot return his violent passion. And when she is not into the stuff he is into, he grows bored with her and marries another woman instead. Typical. Mm -hmm. In the last 50 years, the use of the phrase in either French or English is used tongue-in-cheek in various magazines and newsprint, as in a Washington Post article in 1981, a Nation article in 1995, and a GQ article in 2002. In 1981, WAPO writer Boo Browning wrote in a review of Carla DeVito's debut album, Is This a Cool World or What? Quote, she can do a version of Midnight Confession that sounds like Shirley Temple in the throes of extramarital petite more. That's gross. Mm -hmm. More recently, in her 2009 novel, Prospect Park West, Amy Sohn wrote, quote, how could he think that her mild five-second eruptions had been real compared to this ecstatic and unbridled, seemingly endless little death. Her use of this phrase is a clear attempt to tap into a highbrow literary trope, one that, as we've seen, has trickled down to our world from Shakespeare, Honoré de Balzac, and the survival of humoral theory in pop culture. The end. The end. So, the end, but let's discuss. Yes, there's much to discuss. I've here. given you a lot to unpack and think about, um, and hopefully you have your pants on still. Um, but <laughs> thinking about an orgasm as a little death is certainly meant to convey the significance of the moment in the act. So, like the French literary canon, it's like this spiritual moment. Sex is really meaningful and powerful. Mm-hmm. So, my question is does that 
that sort of sensibility about the orgasm as this wonderful magical spiritual thing with jive, a higher importance yeah so. with a higher does that jive with our current sex regime because mm. it seems like a like the the virginity unless you're you know evangelical christian who cares right it's sex is just important. sex okay mm-hmm. um but then also, Robert Mukumbold argues that since the 1960s, we've also entered a sexual regime that he calls the tyranny of the orgasm, in which enjoying oneself is more than just a possibility. It's an expectation. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, um, particularly because I think the female orgasm is, like, really politically important um, in terms of, like, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, that's, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. That... That I think that, um, like it, you were, you mentioned the the Kinsey uh, sort of obsession with the vaginal orgasm, mm-hmm. and I think that there are a lot of people, and by people I mean men, who are like very invested in the idea of the vaginal orgasm and believe that it's um, not just believe that it's possible, but believe that women who aren't orgasming vaginally are Something's somehow wrong with them, broken, yeah. or they're not trying hard enough, or mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and so this idea of the tyranny of the orgasm that it's required that you have to get there and if you aren't there's something wrong with you yeah is really maybe taken over the idea that the the petite more is like like this otherworldly almost like bonus yeah you know like sex is a thing and you have sex to reproduce but then sometimes you experience the petite more and it raises it to another level yeah does that make sense yeah yeah and that, well, it's funny you should mention the the female orgasm because I read something about the history of people being worried about a woman's ability to fake her orgasm. Mm. Um, Ovid, the Roman poet, was like, I am so in touch with human experience and emotion that I always know when you're faking, ladies. <laughs> and he writes, so then, my dear ones, feel the pleasure in the very marrow of your bones. Share it fairly with your lover. Say pleasant, naughty things the while. And if nature has withheld from you the sensation of pleasure, then teach your lips to lie and say you feel it all. Unhappy is the woman who feels no answering thrill. But if you have to pretend, don't portray yourself by overacting. Let your movements and your eyes combine to deceive us and gasping, panting, complete the illusion. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but and so he claims that he could always tell when his female lovers were uh faking but really the only way you could determine a fake female orgasm would be if you did the masters and johnson and hooked her up to machines while also closely observing the right. vagina for activity right because the involuntary spasms are really right. the key to understanding real versus fake and you may be able to tell that like while you know if you're having vaginal intercourse you know you may be able to like tell that that's happening yeah um yeah but but it's like ovid was concerned about it because it gave women sexual power power. right and that's a problem right that's always the problem yeah yeah for sure yeah and you also mentioned earlier in the episode i think this is related that the the importance of the clitoris to orgasm because again i i think a lot of men are invested in the idea that a vaginal orgasm is the only real orgasm and dislike it when women want clitoral contact because 
you're because vaginal intercourse is the way that heterosexual people have sex. That's the appropriate way mm-hmm. to have sex. And the clitoris is actually not necessarily engaged in that process. Right. And so when women sort of demand that, that's seen as like extra, mm-hmm. like not part of like the deal. Right. Um, Which certainly is a trickle down effect of 19th, 18th, 17th century sex, well, 19th century mostly, sexological ideas that sex was a penis. Right. You had to have a penis to have sex, which is why, like, same-sex sex sex between women is almost never legislated against. Mm -hmm. Because it just didn't count. Because it It didn't count. It wasn't sex. Yeah. Because it's not not necessarily, quote-unquote, penetrative. Right. Which still can be penetrative, but not because it doesn't involve a A penis. An actual male penis attached to a male person. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. And then what ends up happening is because of this sort of idea that the you can't or you shouldn't or it's cheating if you're touching the, the using the clitoris in some sort of way, right, is that women don't orgasm mm-hmm. and they fake orgasm. Mm-hmm. So men think that they're getting all of these women off and right. that they're these amazing lovers and they go out and they like build themselves as like, oh, so amazing at sex. And actually they're doing nothing. They're terrible. Ask me how I know. Truly right. terrible. <laughs> no, this is really, I mean, this is really interesting. This, how all of this comes together, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just about the idea of like the little death is like super gendered. Right. Yes. In ways that I think are really powerful and important in that it places all the emphasis on men Mm -hmm. like men's orgasms are the important ones they're Mm -hmm. the ones that are spiritual and elevated right right because women don't really yeah die right we we, they're not you can just keep going that's true right your lover's doing it right Multiple orgasms are, are possible, possible, right? And yeah, in most women, but that also somehow means that they're less yeah important and less powerful because yeah. they don't have a little death, right? Oh yeah. yeah, remember that time in Forty Days and Forty Nights when Josh Hartnett tries to fake his orgasm and the girl he's having sex with is like, "Show me the condom." Is that the one where he's trying not to have sex? Yeah, the, like he has to go the, forty days without having sex. The opening is like he's they have sex having with sex with a flower. Yes, they have sex with a flower. But the opening is he is having sex with like the fifteenth woman, and he's like, "Ugh, this is stupid." The fifteenth woman, like a like a just another no name woman. And he's like, "Ugh, I just can't get into it because I'm whatever." Wow. Yeah, and so he. I find fakes that it. impressive from a man. <laughs> and then he goes on a whatever a spiritual non sex journey. He does a sex Lent Lent sex, sex Lent. He well, he gives up sex for Lent. That's weird. That's the 40 days and 40 nights. It's a weird, it's a weird thing. And then he, yeah, he caresses a woman with a flower and she apparently gets off from that. That's not a thing. No, it's definitely That not. doesn't work. It wasn't even vaginal. I mean, it was just. No, just flower touching. Just flower touching the skin. Which is like, you know, there are actually non-touching ways that you can have an orgasm, certainly. I mean, no. I don't think that's super common yeah. it's difficult in particular situations or whatever but it is it is yeah. possible mental mm-hmm. yeah yeah sure oh, i have some other things in there um i thought that was fun uh, i learned i learned that the more popular name in the 16th century among italian and french anatomists for the clitoris was going to be the nymphae well weren't nymphs considered like very very um frisky yes yes yeah I think Marissa talked about that in an episode. Oh. 
the 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 kind of etymology of the term nymphomaniac. Oh yeah, and how like oh. nymphs were like hypersexual, but it was yes. actually if you look at the stories, like the nymphs were actually often being like ravished and raped. Right. I yeah. believe that's what she was saying. Forgive me if I'm wrong. I can't remember what episode it was in. Well, in that case, and I'm glad we went with clitoris. Right. Which was just the old Greek version of clitoris, which also means, what did it, it means? <laughs> Door tender. Door tender. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It is tending is, the this, door. It's like you're, yeah. You don't get in there. There's the key. Unless you do a little of that. Yep. I'm never assigning this episode to students. Oh, this is happening in my fall <laughs> class. I can't wait. Oh, God. Sorry. You're learning things today. <laughs> yeah, that's really, again, like the, the names that we give things are so interesting, right? Like you made the point about vagina meaning sheath and penis mm. refers to a sword. Yep. Right? Right? Like that has a lot of power. Like who is the submissive accepting? Who is the powerful? You know. Who is doing the know, killing with your yeah, dagger? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The penis but is like the killer. calling a clitoris nymphy or nymphi, yeah. right, has this like very kind of negative sexual association yeah. that nymphs were overly sexualized Mm -hmm. and that that would kind of even more uh put even more emphasis on the fact that like you're really not supposed to mess around with the clitoris right like it's too much Mm -hmm. Ugh, i hate men men are fucking terrible (laughs) you're all right some of you so not all men yeah, hashtag not all men. No, some of you have figured it out. You can find the little man yeah. in the boat and you're doing okay. But. A few 16th century Italian and French anatomists figured it out. Yeah. They discovered the clitoris all There's on their own. Also a modern ballet called Le Petit Moor. There is, but I don't feel like talking about it. Sounds intense. If you're into it, Google it. Yeah, if you have ever been to the ballet and you've seen this orgasm ballet... Yeah, tell us about I it. I want you to tell us about it. Report back. How do they bring to life the Dying orgasm while with, having sex with dancing bods? That was a real episode we just did. A great climax to our death series, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we hope that you've enjoyed, but not too much. Yep. And you kept those headphones in the whole time. And you kept your <laughs> pants on the whole time. Yes, please. And make sure you follow us on um, Facebook or unfollow us. Maybe now's the time for that. <laughs> um, we're on Twitter as well, dig mm-hmm. underscore history. You can join our pod squad where we will post lots of uh, inappropriate memes that are sex related to go along with this episode. Sure. Now's yeah. the time. We'll if try to were, find them. If you're waiting for your moment to enter the pod squad. This would be it. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure you leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, pot, Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called now, mm-hmm. because that helps us get found. Mm-hmm. And we like other people to learn about orgasms. Yeah. Any any of the podcatchers have, I think uh, lots of them have review yes. sections. So anywhere you listen, a review is super helpful to us. So thanks for listening yeah. to this. Thank you very much, and we will see you in the next series, which will not be about orgasms. In the year 2020! Oh, yeah. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of DIG, Elizabeth Garner-Masaryk, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, 
Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Clitoris, blood pressure, wait, as Jeffrey Quaif. But he follows her, and they have glorious, mind-blowing sex. Oh, God damn you. I was trying to give you the sign. That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. His memories of women. And French officers and Chinese girls. And French officers yep. and Chinese girls. He had a really good time. He's a criminal. Those things together? Yep. Those things individually? All those things together bring him to orgasm. It's a spank bank. That's pretty great. Petite vagina. Le petit mot. That conception required that both sex partners. Why can't I talk? I know, these are short sentences just for you. What? What does that mean? Did you complain about my long sentences? You do write the most complicated sentences in your copy. It's like, they've got Not like right 47 subclauses. So okay. turn your mouth to the words. <clears throat> and if you believe that virginity is a thing, which is fucking bullshit. And this or whoever that guy was who was like following his daughter to the gynecologist and insisting that the doctor prove to him that her hymen was still intact. Like that's fucking disgusting. And I hope that you choke slash dig podcast i think <laughs> that was professional our pit <laughs> especially our pit <laughs>